there are several foundational doctrines that are vital to the Christian church and have been over the years such. One of them involves what we call the attributes of God. Now, I realize that uh, that may be a foreign language in some churches today and may not be understood, so I'll briefly explain. The attributes of God speak of what the Bible teaches. In other words, the biblical truths taken from Scripture that describe who God is. His unique characteristics. His unique qualities. It is the teaching of those and an understanding about who God is in His glory and in His uniqueness. And there are several attributes of God that would immediately come to mind when we speak of them, such as His eternality. That is, that God is eternal. He had no beginning and He has no end. We all had a beginning. But God is eternal. He always was. And He always will be. There's always been a God. And if that were not the case, none of us would be here. This earth would not be here. So one of His attributes, His great attributes, is His eternality. But we also often think of His omnipotence. That is, He is the all-powerful, almighty God. There is nothing that God cannot do in His omnipotence if He so desires. I have been reading in the Old Testament in past days even regarding the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and think of the things that God did to bring about that deliverance against the hard heart of Pharaoh, how he brought his people out of Egypt and out of bondage. And then at the uh, the Red Sea, how their backs were up against the sea and God parted the sea. And the Scripture says there was a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left and they went through as on dry ground. That's a tremendous miracle and no one but God can do such a thing. And that's why liberals and atheists try to say, oh, it wasn't the the Red Sea, it was the Sea of Reeds, which is just like a little mud puddle. And they passed through in the mud. And that mud drowned the Egyptian army too. But the reason that they do that is because they can't accept the omnipotence of God. The sovereign power of God intervening in time and space and history to bring about His purposes for His people. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. That is, He knows everything. He is able to know even the hearts of men. And so God knows all. He is everywhere and knows everything. Omnipotence. Omnipresence. He is the God who is God. We find all of these taught in the Bible. God's self-revelation to us as He tells us who He is and what He is like 
this is what we find given to us in the Scriptures. And this is what we find, as I mentioned, even demonstrated in the Scriptures, that God does these mighty things. Today we're going to see part of this, or some of this, as it is attributed to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we continue on in our study of His Word to the church in Philadelphia. We're going to find that the God that we worship is God. Jesus is a wonderful Savior, and we sing His praises. But He is, and make no mistake, He is the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Wonderful, the Omnipresent, the Omnipotent God who is God. This is how He shows Himself. Turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue on in our study. Revelation chapter 3. Dear Philadelphia, verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I'm going to begin to open up some of that second portion of verse 7. I remind you that we're looking at under the broadest category, the Holy One addressing the city of brotherly love. Last Lord's Day we focused on the angel of the church mentioned there in verse 7 as he says to the angel of the church at Philadelphia. And we said that that angel, that word angel, angelos, in the Greek means messenger, which means he's likely speaking to the pastor or elder or bishop of the church. And because it's that bishop or that pastor who is supposed to tell the church what God says. And then we also went on to see the identity of the church that is the church there at Philadelphia and what Philadelphia was like there in that valley, a prosperous area noted for their pasture land and their grapes and their wine, yet not very populated because of the earthquake. So it was not likely a very large church. And we also mentioned that we're not sure exactly who founded the church in Philadelphia, but many believe that it was the Apostle John himself, the one who is writing this book of Revelation. Today we want to pick up with the one addressing the church. We've seen the angel of the church and a bit of the identity of the church. And now we want to pick up with the one addressing the church. And I want to be sure that we understand who it is telling John what to write to this church. And we find that back in chapter 1. This is the context the setup, as it were, for what is written to the churches. Because our Lord Jesus tells the Apostle John in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Jesus is telling John to write this and to send it to the seven churches. So, this is the one who is speaking, as it were, to that angel that messenger who is the, the, to then take what Jesus says and tell it to the church. 
And we see Him here in this passage as the one who holds the seven stars. In verse 12, I turned to see the voice of the one that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Now look at verse 16. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So what are these seven stars? He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, we don't have to go too far to understand what they are because he tells us. He goes on to tell us in verse 20, And the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So he actually says he is holding in his hand the messenger to the church. The messengers to these seven churches are held in the hand of God. That's the picture that is being given. He holds the angels. Now, this signifies His power and His authority and His headship over the churches. I'm not the head of this church. I'm simply a messenger. Remember, they don't shoot the messenger. I'm telling you what God says in His Word. I am simply a messenger. He is the head of the church. He holds even the messengers in His hands. And when you read in Hebrews chapter 13, a passage that seldom leaves my mind, I'm going to have to give an account for what I tell this church. I'm going to have to give an account to this Jesus in whose hand I am held for what I teach you, for what I tell you, for how I instruct you, or for what I fail to do, or how I fail to instruct you, or how short I come of giving you the truth of what Jesus says to His church. He is the one who is in charge, and I am one who will give an account. Pray for me, please. It is a serious matter. One that I take serious every week when I come before you. I can't help again but wonder what a bad day it's going to be for some men who call themselves pastors today when they have to give an account. But anyway, him holding those seven stars in his hand signifies that He is the head of His church. It is Christ who rules. It is Christ who keeps and guides His church even today. Nothing happens outside of the purview of the Holy God, Jesus Christ, in His church. He's in charge. And that includes this church. Nothing happens outside of His sovereign purview. Next, let's take a look at him as the one who walks among the lampstands. Verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands. Now, somebody gave me a hard time last week because I said candlestick. 
But that is the translation, that is the Greek meaning of the word candlestick. And in fact, you will find it translated that way in, I think the King James translates it that way, and the American Standard Version of 1901 translates it candlestick. And I guess some of my teaching from back when I sat under a pastor for a number of years using the 1901 American Standard, I guess candlestick just came back. But it's the same word, lampstand, candlestick. It speaks of the brightness of Christ in His church. He tells us that the lampstands are, verse 20, the lampstands are the seven churches. That's verse 20 towards the end. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have the seven churches represented by the the, the lampstands. And what we see in verse 13 is that He was in the middle of the lampstands. Now, some suggest that the, the fire from the candle or the fire from the lampstand would represent the presence of the Holy Spirit or the presence of Christ. Uh, once again, I draw back on my youth and I can't help but remember that in Roman Catholic churches, you will have a golden lampstand right up by the altar. And there will be a candle lit in there. And it's to signify the presence of Christ among His church. They might as well blow it out because that candle has been gone a long time. But that's the picture that we have. But more than that, I want to suggest to you or show you that it is Christ who is in the midst of the lampstands, signifying that Christ is in the midst of His church. Christ is in the middle, in the midst, around with His church. It is His supernatural presence. The omniscient God is in the midst of His church. In the midst of our church. And that's how He knows what to tell the churches. That's how He knew what to tell the church at Ephesus or the church at Sardis or the churches that will come in Laodicea or the one we're looking at in Philadelphia. He knows because He's there. He's omniscient God. The omnipresent God. He knows because He's there in the midst of the church. That ought to be a frightening thing. If you come to church with a heart that is not right, you come to a place where Jesus is in the midst. More about that in a moment. But He is the one who walks among His people and is intimately involved in their lives. He personally knows their goings out and their coming in. And He is personally involved in directing and guiding and helping His church. Listen, people, we are not deists. You know that from deism? You know what deism is? Deism essentially teaches that God created the world and then has nothing really more to do with it. He's just like some potentate who sits back and watches as uh, men go through their trials and their tribulations. And the picture is almost like the Roman gods who kind of laugh at what happens at the distress of men. And maybe they'll even throw a lightning bolt down. No, no, deists don't think they do. Deists think that God has nothing to do with the world. Like winding up a clock, 
setting it down and letting it run out. We are not deists. We are theists. We believe that God not only created the world, but sustains the world. Not only created mankind, but sustains mankind, helps mankind, guides mankind, helps His people specifically, even as I mentioned a little while ago, as He helped the nation of Israel. He today is involved in your life, in my life, in the lives of His people, in the lives of His church. This is what we believe God does. We are theists. We believe He created and sustains and guides and helps His church even today. There are clear passages in the Scripture that teach this. As we've talked about a few, we'll talk about a few more, but don't lose the fact that this passage that we're looking in that we're looking at here in Revelation as he deals with Philadelphia and the other churches is such a passage. If he was a, if this was deism, he wouldn't care what was going on in the churches. He wouldn't tell the churches what they need to do or how they need to change. He'd just sit back and watch. But that's not the God of the Bible. And that's not the God we're looking at right here in the book of Revelation. Now, let me just say to you before we go on that this ought to be of great encouragement to those who minister to His church. I mentioned a few moments ago I am one who will have to give an account for how I minister and how I labor. But I have this great confidence that I don't do it alone. You don't come to see me. You don't come to hear me. I hope you come to meet with God. And so therefore, as I bring His Word, I'm not on my own. I come in the name of Christ, in the power of Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to take the Word of Christ to your hearts. I cannot change your heart. I cannot change your life. But the Christ who's in our midst can. I cannot give long, lengthy invitations and twist your arm and get you to come down an aisle and get saved. I can't do it. Well, I could do it, but it would be a sham as it is. Men can't change men's hearts, but God can. And the God who is in the midst of His church is able to change the hearts of the hearers of His Word. The Holy Spirit takes that and pierces men's hearts. He is in the midst of His church to help His church. To keep His church. And yes, even to save those that are there by His glory. His presence in our church with the Holy Spirit is what God uses even to save men. Now I want to ask you to do something for me. Turn, if you would please, to Genesis. Believe it or not, all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. As we see that not only ought this to be encouragement to those who minister, it ought to be of great encouragement to those who attend His church. Because, as we're going to see, this is a basic biblical principle given in God's Word. That He is with His people. And this is in a particular, in a peculiar way. 
One asked me not too many weeks ago, doesn't God love everybody? Yes, indeed. God loves His creation. But in a special, in a particular, in a peculiar way, He loves His people. And He cares for His people, His children. He does so in a special, unique way. Here we have His promise given in Genesis chapter 28. Let's look at verse 10 and following. We're speaking about what happened with Jacob as he's on his way back to the home of his parents. And we see Jacob departed from, this is verse 10, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of that place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. Now, I could never understand why you'd take a stone to be a pillow. I, I really don't understand that. But he did. He took a stone and he put it under his place and he laid down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What an amazing promise of God. I am with you wherever you go. For those of you who were here during this series on heaven, if heaven was a billion miles away past the end of the universe, where was this staircase going? Wouldn't it have taken a long time to go down those stairs? Just the thought. Remember, we said it's likely dimensional. So, this is just an aside for those who were here on this series on heaven for this ladder. But the point we make and the point, the point we make and the point we want to take from this passage is that God promises to be with us and to keep us wherever we would go. Look at chapter 31, just over the page or so. Chapter 31 and down to verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. Look at Exodus chapter 29. Not too far away. I just picked a couple that were pretty close. Exodus chapter 29. Look down to verse 45. God says, And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. His presence was with His people. He is our God. We are His people. And a basic biblical principle is that He promises to be in our midst. 
where His people are, that's where He will be. Look at Isaiah chapter 43. Why does He promise this? Isaiah chapter 43. Let me just say in case I forget that you might want to put a marker in Isaiah 43. We will return to it. But for now, here's what He says. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why? Because He's with us. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's not just, oh, I'll be with you in a general sense. He's with you to care for you, to save you, to help you through times of trial. And this is what our Lord says. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. A very familiar passage and one that we often refer to. This comes actually in the whole context of practicing church discipline. For you read in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 and following how to deal with a brother who is sinned. And God says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then He says in verse 19, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. What a great promise that when you gather together to do the work of God, the church business of God, to worship God, to pray to God, to meet with God, there I will be in your midst. Isn't that what we said was going on in Revelation? He's in the midst of the lampstands. He promised to be in the midst of His church. And that's what He's saying here. And then in the last chapter of Matthew, what does He say? The end of the Gospel in chapter 28. The very last words of this Gospel as He tells them in chapter 28 and verse 19, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing who? Baptizing disciples, not babies. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. Teaching who? Teaching disciples. Can't teach babies. Teaching them to observe all that I can. Yeah, you can. You do teach babies. We do want to do that. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Always. Even unto the end of the age. And again, I remind you of the series on heaven that there is the end of this age and there will be an age to come. But he's saying that he will be with his church until the end of this age. With his people. With that body gathered together. With the church. The lampstand He is in the midst of the lampstands. He will be with us even unto the end of the age. This is His promise. His Spirit, He is in this place. That ought to be of great encouragement to us. 
We do not meet in a vacuum. We do not meet void of the power and the presence and the help of God. We meet together and He is in our midst. Look back to Revelation chapter 3. So this is what He's teaching the church there. I should say Revelation chapter 1, but in chapter 3 we understand that this is the one who is here addressing the church at Philadelphia. The head of the church who is in the midst of His church is addressing His church. Seriously, why does a church meet? Why does a church gather? A church, it is said, the church gathers together to evangelize. The church gathers together to help one another, to fellowship with one another. The church gathers together to be encouraged. All of these are superfluous. The church gathers together to worship the living God in whose presence we are. When we gather as a church We are in the presence of the very living God in the form of His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we are doing. He's in our midst. He's in our presence. We meet with the very God of creation. It's not a cultural thing. It's not a social thing. It's a spiritual meeting with God. We mentioned in the earlier service that uh, so many churches seem to congregate culturally. Spanish people or black people or this kind of race or that kind of Chinese people, whoever. They sort of congregate together and that is really superfluous as well. The most important thing and the reason to gather is to gather in the midst of the church with the truth of God's Word in whose presence is Christ. And we worship Him there in the church. That is what we are doing. That is why we come to worship. I want to just mention that when we consider the magnitude of the One into whose presence we come, it is why we seek to encourage you prior to the service to prepare your heart. It's a little difficult in our particular building, I know. But when you come into this place and the music is playing, hopefully softly, and you're just preparing your hearts because you're going to meet with the living God. This is what we come to do. Now, we'll see this even more enforced as he speaks to this specific church at Philadelphia, because here, when he addresses the church at Philadelphia, he uses three terms to specifically describe himself to this church. Now, in every church that he has addressed, he has used different terms and different types of who he is as he addresses that church. And they were tailored to meet the needs of what was going on in those churches. So here in Philadelphia, he says in verse 7 in the second portion, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. I want to begin by seeing here 
that he identifies himself as he who is holy. And now we're getting into that territory that we began the sermon by speaking of the whole matter of the attributes of God. You know, some of the attributes of God are called communicable attributes. And we have those communicable attributes of God as being created in His image. In communicable attributes, it simply means they can be communicated to us. As created in the image of God, and we are like God, we have wisdom, unlike animals. I mean, I like animals, don't get me wrong. But uh, we are not the same. People tend to think that the dolphins are smarter than people. Uh, no, they're not. Because they can go, eh, 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 doesn't mean they have wisdom. But man, like God, has wisdom. We can plan. We can seek to do things. We can set things up. We have wisdom to understand situations. We are able to communicate, and again, not with little squeaky noises, but we're able to talk and we're able to write and we're able to understand. All of that is so that God can give us His Word so that we can read His Word and understand what He has for us so we can communicate and understand who God is. And to some degree, we strive to be holy. Men do strive to be holy. We ought to strive to be holy. But there is only one who is truly wise. Only one who communicates absolute truth. And only one who is holy. And that is God. God is holy. We strive to be holy, but we sin every day. He is Pure and absolutely holy. Turn back to Isaiah, this time chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And here is Isaiah and what happens with Isaiah when he sees God. Verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to the other, or to another, and said, Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What an experience! As we mentioned about John in Revelation chapter 1, as he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet as a dead man. You do not encounter the living God and remain unchanged. He saw Him and said, Woe is me, for I am undone. He recognized His own sinfulness in the light 
of the pure holiness of the God before whom He stood. And that's what should happen to everyone who is saved. You recognize His absolute holiness and your sinfulness. What can I do before such a God as this? How can I live? How can I go on knowing my own wickedness in the light of His pure holiness? This is our God. We do not come lightly into the presence of this God. We come, as it were, with fear and trembling because of the awesomeness of His holiness. He is high and exalted and lifted up. And we are but dust. Is that the attitude of your heart? Is that the position of this church? Many of us pray daily that that would be. We're dealing with God here. We're speaking of God. Not the big guy upstairs. Yes, I know. And we will speak of His grace and His love and His mercy and how He is a friend who is closer than a brother, but do not ever lose sight of the fact that this is God! And we are but men. And this is whose presence we come into. I take a few more verses as but specimens. If you would, look over to chapter 40 of Isaiah. Chapter 40 and verse 25. This is what God says about Himself. Chapter 40, down to verse 25. To whom will you liken me that I should be His equal, says the Holy One. There is none other than God who is absolutely holy. Who are you going to compare Him to? Who can you think of to compare to God as pointing them out as absolutely holy. There is none. This is what he is saying even about himself. Look over again a few chapters or of the next chapter to chapter 41 down to verse 14. Well, let's look at verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not fear. You worm. Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Our Redeemer is the Holy One. How could you be redeemed by someone who is sinful? How could you be redeemed by someone who wasn't pure and spotless? Behold, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had to be pure, sinless, absolutely holy. Otherwise, it would be like me trying to save you. I can't do it. I'm a sinful man. But God is absolutely holy. Sinless. The Holy One who is the Redeemer. 
chapter 30, 43. These are some of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. God is here just showing us who He is. Who He is in comparison to anything or anyone else. Look what He says in verse 15 of chapter 43. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He is our Creator. He is our King. Do we see Him that way? My dear Christian friend, do you see God this way? Absolutely holy. High and lofty and lifted up. The mighty God who fills the earth with His glory. The mighty God who condescends to man and fills this place with His presence. Imagine that. This holy God would come to this place and fill this place with His glory. This is the way men should see Him. Look at Mark chapter 1 and see who actually does see Him this way. And compare it to the shallow, cavalier way that many approach our God today. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. I'll back up to verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Here He is. Jesus is the Holy One of God. And isn't it interesting that a demon knew He was the Holy One of God? And is it interesting that the demon was in church? Or the synagogue in this case. I dare say the demons know more of the holiness of God than most people who attend churches today, or at least they act like it. They know and they shudder, James says. People go to churches today and they don't even seem to care that we're dealing with the holy God even when we're dealing with our Savior Jesus. He is the Holy One of God. And so we look a little bit more from this to John chapter 6 and realize that even poor schmucks like us can finally get it. John chapter 6, as the disciples, many were leaving Him and withdrawing from Him towards the end of this chapter because He was teaching things that were difficult and they withdrew not walking with Him anymore in verse 66. And then in verse 67, Jesus said therefore to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that You 
are the Holy One of God. The true disciples of Jesus will come to know Him as the Holy One of God. Do you? Do you know Him this way? Do you see Him as He is? They saw Him. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is the thrice holy God. And so we often sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now the interesting thing is this. As you look at our text in Revelation chapter 3, it is obviously and no doubt Jesus who is speaking to the church. That's why we went back to chapter 1 to make sure we laid that foundation. This is Jesus speaking to the church. And what does He say to the church? He is holy. The one who is speaking to the church is He who is holy. Holy. What did God say in Isaiah? There is none other who is holy except Me. So the God who spoke to Israel called Himself holy. And here we have Jesus speaking to His church with an attribute of God. Holy. And so, this is how we know that Jesus is indeed the divine Son of God. The true God-man. True God and true man. He is God! Because one of the reasons is we see attributed to Him in the Scriptures the attributes of God. He is holy as God is holy. I wonder how these cults miss this stuff. You have all kinds of cults and things like that who uh, say that Jesus could not be divine because there's one God. Yes, there is one God. But that one God has revealed Himself in Scripture as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God in three persons. And we proudly announce that we believe in the Trinity. The Holy God, the Father, the Holy God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have no problem with that. It doesn't mean we believe in three gods. It means we believe in the God of the Bible who has revealed Himself this way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And make no mistake, Jesus is holy. He is the pure Son of God. And that is how He could give His life for us. Because He was pure and spotless and holy, untainted with the sins of man. As I said a little while ago, that many men strive to be holy, and that's good. We need to. But we will never measure up to the holiness of Christ. And so how can unholy sinners like us go to be with that Christ in heaven? Only by His sacrifice. Only by His mercy. Only by His shed blood covering our sins so that in the eyes of God we too become as holy as Jesus. You realize that? 
That's why we sing washed in the blood. Because His blood covers our unrighteousness. And so that in the eyes of God, you are as holy as Jesus. Not that you don't sin yet, but His sacrifice paid the debt for your sin. Little ones, this is how you are saved. This is how you can be righteous in the eyes of God. To be with God in heaven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins, making you as holy as He is. This is the Gospel. This is our God. This is who is with us right now. Let's pray.